Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Bible Backdrop Podcast. As promised, I will be talking today about covenants in the Bible. Earlier, I thought to tie this into the Jewish feast and festivals, as sharing a meal was a part of the covenant process. However, as I started researching for this episode, the subject of covenant alone was enough. I'll talk about the feasts in later episodes, but we'll solely focus on covenant today. To start, what is a covenant? When you hear that word, you probably have a general idea about what it means. Maybe you think of a contract, or a treaty, or even a ceremony. In reality, it's all of that and much more. The word covenant comes from the Latin convenir, meaning a coming together. The Hebrew word used is berit. We find it 280 times in the Old Testament, and it signifies a bond between two parties. The origin of this word could have come from several different places. It may have come from the significance of sharing a meal together after making a covenant. We see this in Genesis 26, when Isaac makes a covenant with Abimelech, and they share a meal together. We also see it in Genesis 31, between Jacob and Laban, after Jacob has left his service there. Another possible origin is from the cutting of animals. In Genesis 15:18, we see God making a covenant with Abram by cutting animals in half and then walking between them. This is where the term to quote-unquote cut a covenant is derived. When we get to the New Testament, a different word is used. Here, it is the Greek word diatheke. It is not an exact translation of berit, but it is used throughout the whole New Testament. This is very significant when talking about covenants. The writers could have used the word syntheki, which means to bind together, and is a closer translation to the Hebrew word berit. These words, syntheki and berit, relate more to agreements that are to be fulfilled in the future. Diatheke, on the other hand, refers to an agreement that can be fulfilled immediately. For example, a disposition of property or a legal adoption. There is no waiting for the future. Diatheke is a covenant that makes someone a part of the family immediately. Keep this in mind as we talk about the different types of covenants, especially those between God and man. That being said, let's dive into the different types of covenants that we find in the Bible. There are three different types of covenants. The first is between equal parties of people. The second between unequal parties of people. And the third is between God and man. Each one was a bit different and had different meanings. First, let's look at the covenants that are equal between people. These are bilateral agreements. Both parties vowed and both had responsibilities to carry out assigned roles. Breaking a covenant had social and sometimes physical consequences. For instance, when Joseph was engaged to Mary, this was considered a type of covenant. Mary being pregnant would have been seen as breaking of this covenant and there was a possibility she would have been stoned to death. A good example of this kind of covenant would be between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20. In this chapter of the Bible, they have already previously made a covenant, as seen in verse 8, and it is renewed in verse 16. In this covenant, Jonathan swears to protect the life of David by sounding out Saul on his feelings toward David. From David's side, he will show kindness to Jonathan's family. 
What's interesting here is that Jonathan is well aware that David has been anointed to be the next king, which means it won't be Jonathan. It is greatly to his advantage if David is dead. Jonathan understands, however, that David is God's anointed and has been shown God's favor. As a result, Jonathan not only accepts this, but is willing to make sure that David is not harmed by Saul. The covenant here between them is that David, if given the opportunity, will spare Jonathan's life and his family's life once David is king. Usually, when someone outside the royal line becomes king, the first thing they do is eliminate everyone from the previous royal line so that nobody can claim the crown for themselves. In the ancient world, it was extremely important to have your family line continue, and Jonathan wants to be sure this happens. David follows up on this covenant in 2 Samuel 9 when he finds Jonathan's son, gives him all of Saul's lands, and invites him to eat at the king's table, making him equal to the royal family. Another type of covenant between equals is that of nations. Similar to the covenant between equal people, nations sometimes entered into covenant to vanquish a common foe, for trade, or as a standing alliance. There are a few examples of this in the Bible. The earliest is between Israel and the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. They deceive the Israelites into thinking that they are from a faraway land. The Israelites agree to make a covenant with them, and this goes against God's command to not do so with the people who reside in the promised land. When they find they are deceived, the Israelites are bound by their covenant to not harm them. However, Joshua cursed them by making them slaves to the Israelites. Another time we see a covenant between nations was between Solomon and Hiram of Tyre in 1 Kings 5. This was an economic covenant with Hiram providing lumber and workers for the temple and Solomon providing food to the workers along with other payment. So covenant wasn't strictly between people but could also be between nations. Now we come to unequal covenants between people. This was almost always between a king, also called a suzerain, and his subjects, also called vassals. These were not treaties as we think of them today. They were written on tablets and could not be altered or annulled. There were also provisions that the covenant would continue to the vassal's children. There were two purposes to understand in these kinds of covenants. First, the suzerain showed grace by sparing the conquered vassals, delivering them from extenuating circumstances, and placing them in situations of life and well-being. Second, the covenants had an administrative function. It informed the vassals how the suzerain would govern them and what they were to do in obedient response to him. We don't see a direct instance of this happening in the Bible, but there are allusions to it. In 2 Kings 17, it says that Hoshea, the last king of Israel, had been a vassal to the king of Assyria. However, the king discovered that Hoshea had been in league with Egypt and stopped paying tribute, so he attacked Israel and had them exiled. They became known as the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. Another place where this should have happened but didn't was in 1 Kings 20. Ahab, the king of Israel, defeated Ben-Hadad of Aram. Instead of making him a vassal, the king made an equal partner covenant with him. This would come back to bite him when Aram returned three years later for another war. The final type of covenant is between God and man. Like the suzerain-vassal covenants, these were between unequal partners. 
Instead of bilateral, they were unilateral. God initiated the covenant, determined the elements, and then confirmed it. The people are recipients, not contributors. They are called to accept it as offered, keep it as demanded, and receive the results that God assures will not be withheld. The covenant between God and man is woven into every story and prophecy throughout the Bible. It is enduring and foundational to Scripture. While we see it throughout the Bible, there are seven covenants that stand out. The first is the Edenic covenant. In the Garden of Eden, God commands people to be fruitful and multiply, and they will have dominion over the earth. While the word barit is not mentioned here, Hosea 6-7 states that Adam broke the covenant. Again, we see that it is foundational to the scriptures. The second is the Noahic covenant. After the flood, God promises to never again destroy the earth with a flood and provides a rainbow as a sign of his promise. Next, we have the Abrahamic covenant. Established in Genesis 12-17, through God promises to make Abraham a great nation, give him all the land from Egypt to the Euphrates, and that Abraham would be the father of many nations. This was sealed with the men getting circumcised. After that, we have the Mosaic Covenant. Described in Exodus 19 through 24, God promises to make Israel a holy nation if they follow his laws and precepts. The blood of an ox on the altar sealed this covenant. After that, we have the Priestly Covenant. Here, God made a covenant with Aaron and his descendants that they would be his priests, able to go before the altar at the appointed times. Next, we have the Davidic Covenant. From David, God promises to establish an eternal kingdom. Finally, we have the New Covenant. Here, Jesus asked his followers to eat the bread that represented his body and the cup that represented his blood as a seal for the New Covenant. The first six are all represented by the Berit Covenant. These are requirements that are done today with a future fulfillment. The last covenant, the new covenant that Jesus establishes, is a diatheke covenant. It is fulfilled immediately upon acceptance. When a person follows Christ, the fulfillment is immediate and the person becomes adopted into the family. Covenants in the Near East at this time usually followed a set process. There were always some local differences, but the following example is pretty standard. First, you would start with a title or preamble. This identified the giver of the covenant, their titles, and the nature of the relationship, whether it was between equal or unequal parties. Next, you may have had a historical prologue. Mostly you saw this in a suzerain-vassal covenant. It described the history of the relationship between the two parties in order to make the vassal feel obligated to the suzerain because of past benefits. Then come the stipulations of the covenant. These are the requirements of both parties in an equal covenant or what the vassal must do in an unequal covenant. Usually this included that the vassal would serve in the suzerain's army, pay tribute, and accept the suzerain's judgment when conflict arose between vassals. Next, a schedule of periodic public readings would take place and the covenant would be placed in the temple. This placed it at the heart of the society and people would always be reminded of their responsibilities. A list of witnesses would be included in the covenant. For suzerain vassal covenants, this often included the deities of the nations. 
Since there was considered no higher appeal, this allowed the covenant to be self-policing. To break the covenant was a break with your deity. For biblical covenants, it would be inappropriate to include other deities. There were instances where nature was told to witness the works of God, such as in Deuteronomy 32.1, Isaiah 1.2, and Micah 6.1-2. In biblical covenants, we often see a pillar of stone set up as a witness and reminder. Recalling Genesis 31, Jacob set up a pillar of stones as a reminder of his covenant with Laban. Continuing with the covenant process, we come to the final parts. The last piece of the covenant was the blessings and the curses. If you followed the terms of the covenant, there would be blessings. If not, there would be curses. Deuteronomy 28 lists the blessings and the curses of the covenant God set with Israel. Finally, the covenant would be concluded with an oath and a ceremony. Often this was where the cutting of animals would take place and a ceremonial meal would happen between the parties. Now, I know we've covered a lot of things on this episode, so let's recap. The word covenant comes from the Latin convenir, meaning a coming together. The two words used in the Bible for covenant, berit in Hebrew and diatheke in Greek, had different meanings. Berit is for a covenant that would have promises fulfilled in the future, while diatheke had promises that were fulfilled instantly. There were three different types of covenants, equal between people, unequal between people, and those between God and man. A great example of the covenant between equals is between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, which is fulfilled in 2 Samuel 9. Equal covenants can also happen between nations, such as in 1 Kings 5, between Solomon and Hiram of Tyre. Then we have unequal covenants between people. These are almost always between nations with a king, also called a suzerain, and his subjects, called vassals. The covenant stipulated the way they would be governed and the vassals' requirements to the suzerain. Finally, we have the covenants between God and his people. These covenants are all over the Bible and are foundational to Scripture. God outlines his promises, and we are called to accept it as offered. As I said earlier, the Berit covenants had future fulfillment, while the Diatheke covenant had immediate fulfillment. This is the new covenant that God establishes with Jesus' sacrifice and his role as mediator for the people. He took on the curse of the broken covenant and made a new one that allows us to be accepted immediately into his family. On that note, it's time to bring a close to this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed hearing all about covenants. If you're enjoying Bible Backdrop, please subscribe and enter a five-star rating and review. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send an email to biblebackdrop at gmail.com. For the next few episodes, I'm going to start giving some history and background to the cities and locations of Paul's letters. After that, I'll come back to look at the Jewish feasts and festivals. Thank you so much and have a great week.